Well, today's scripture comes from Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, verses 1 through 10. We're going to be reading in the ESV. Uh, if you want to look that up in a Pew Bible, or if you brought your own Bible or a Bible app, again, it's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, we're going to be doing a, a responsive reading, which means that I'll read the first verse and we'll all respond with a verse after that, and we'll keep going back and forth until the end. And so, uh, again, if you could look that up, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word for us today. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Oh, sorry, you, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. My bad. <laughs> All right, let, let's do that again. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, friends, we are continuing in... um, our sermon series, The Big Story, where we're going through uh, the book of Ephesians. And I wanted to kind of illustrate what we mean by big story, um, as opposed to the little stories that we so often live, uh, with with, uh, a story from a few years ago. uh, I was talking to a, a former youth group student who felt challenged to read the Bible in a year. Uh, if you ever feel challenged to do this, uh, I want to kind of make available what I did for this student, was I told him, like, hey, if you ever have any questions, you know, come and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about it. And so from time to time, he took me up on that, and he would call me, and he would ask me questions about what he was reading. And uh, so he got about a third of the way through the Bible. So, you know, you're just in the, the woods of the Old Testament at that point, <laughs> being a third of the way through. And he called me one night. And, and he told me this thing that I thought was both very profound and very obvious, maybe, in some ways. But he was, like, really amazed by this. He was like, Pastor Steve, i got to tell you, after reading about a third of the Bible, I realized something. I was like, oh, what did you realize? He said, this book is about God. And I was like, yes. <laughs> Amen. You're right. <laughs> but you know what was mind-blowing for him is that oftentimes when he read the Bible, he thought the Bible was about him. Right? He thought it was about humans. He's like, this book is really about God. And we are a part of the story, but we are not the main character. You know? And I think that's a very, very important thing to recognize. 
When we talk about the big story, we are talking about something that is bigger than just our individual lives. This is kind of the case that we've been trying to make over the past couple weeks. Part of the reason why so many of us are dissatisfied by our little stories. And we look at our lives and we say, is this it? Isn't there more? Isn't there a greater meaning of life? Is because our lives, for as much as they can contain, are relatively small in the big picture. Right? It doesn't matter how big you think you are, you're still a human being. Right? And so if your story is all about you, if uh, everything you're living for is about this individual story, how am I going to make it? How am I going to have a satisfying life? How am I going to ha- you know, have fun or be successful? You know, that story can only ever be as big as you. Does that make sense? That story can ever only be as big as you. And so the case we've been trying to make over the past couple weeks is trying to convince you that God's story is bigger than that. And if you want to live a bigger story, you need to hook your story into God's story. We have to figure out how to do that. And so just kind of by way of review, uh, we went over it last week, Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. This is the big story. This is the will of God that is spelled out to us so clearly in Scripture. So he made known to us the mystery of his will, the mystery of the will of God, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's the big story to unite everything, to unite all people, the ways that we have made our lives so individual. We live out these individual histories, these individual stories, these individual ambitions. Brothers and sisters, we feel so disconnected from this bigger story, which is not about being an individual. It is about being a collective. It is about being a body. It is about coming together. That's what love is about. And so the case that we've been making is that you can live this individual story, but what you will find is those stories are so lonely. And we find that in America today with the hyper-individualism that we're living out. We have never been so lonely, never been so disconnected. And so, yes, there is something to be said about, uh, as you can see, we have a picture of a river that's flowing, right? Water is flowing into the river and water is flowing out of the river. It is alive. There's something to be said about that as opposed to say, the Dead Sea that we talked about a couple weeks ago. The Dead Sea is the lowest point uh, of elevation on Earth, uh, above grounds. And so the Dead Sea is this place where water flows in, but nothing flows out. And it's dead. It's just full of salt. Right? Nothing can live or grow in the Dead Sea. Because it is not living its, its purpose of being able to flow out with blessing. You were made to love each other. You were made to bless one another. You weren't made to just receive blessings and hog them for yourselves. You were made to be a blessing. You were made to be connected. You were made not to just receive love. You were made to love yourself. And unless we do that, we will never be living the big story. And so we're going to be reading uh, probably one of the most famous passages in Scripture. But we take, uh, the, the most famous part of this is Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. 
And Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, um, what, what it says is, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, the way that the church has traditionally treated Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, is we think that when it says, For by grace you have been saved, we think that you is singular. Well, it's not. Most of the yous that appear in the letters of Paul are plural. Well, partially because Paul was writing to more than one person, right? He was writing to many churches. In the case of Ephesians, we think he was writing uh, probably circular that was passed around to many different churches. And so uh, the idea that he would be saying, hey, this is the individual plan of salvation for you is probably not the case. He's talking about for all of us. And so to treat Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 as an individual story for how we can personally be saved is probably not what it was meant to be. It's bigger than that. And so I want to kind of pull back and I I just want to plant that idea that this is not just an individual story. Hey, how can I get to heaven? Now, I don't know about anyone else, but I am going to get to heaven if I believe in God, right? But everyone else, well, good luck. That's not exactly what it's saying. So let's pull back and let's see it in the context of this bigger story. So starting in verse 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that's kind of a mouthful right there. Um, And we use some big words, or, well, it's actually a very small word, but it's a word that has been very loaded throughout throughout the years, uh, throughout uh, Christian history, is that word sin. Only three letters, right? But whenever you hear the word sin, man, it's like such a kind of like salacious word, right? I I don't know. Try it sometime. Maybe when you're out uh, on the diag. You know, maybe you're in your classroom. Just say really loud. Just say sin and just see how people react. And people probably won't be like, oh, oh, cool. (laughs) I mean, maybe they will, but some people would just be like, what? Sin? What? You know, it's it's, it's a charged word. It it means something, right? But in the context of uh, the Greek, sin, uh, the term they use is harmatia. It comes from uh, archery. And so in archery, right, you're trying to hit that target. Hermatia means you are missing the target. You're off. You're not where you're supposed to be. And this, to me, I think, will be much more instructive if you understand sin that way. Sin is being not with God, but you're kind of all over the place. You're where God doesn't want you to be. It's not just doing bad stuff. I think that's very important for us to understand. We read a passage like this, and it's not going to really make sense if you only think about sin as those naughty things that people do on their computers at night. Don't tell anyone. Delete that browser history, right? Those things that you do at Necto. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone what you're doing at that club. Oh, man, that's so bad. You know, those few juicy, bad things that people look at, and everyone's like, oh, I'm so ashamed. It could be those things. Don't get me wrong. It could be. I'm not trying to give you a pass, but I'm trying to tell you it's bigger than that. It's not just bad stuff. It is missing the mark of where God wants you to be. 
Okay? And so it says, you were dead in the trespasses, right? What is trespassing? You know, uh, I don't know if any of you guys played Pokemon Go. It's, it's a thing on Pokemon Go. They always tell you, do not trespass. Do not trespass. Because what would happen is that they use Google Maps for Pokemon Go. If you guys aren't familiar with it, you go and you catch Pokemon that are on your phone, but they're actually mapped to Google Maps. And so you, you actually have to go to that physical location to catch that Pokemon, right? And so what people would do, because you know the technology was not that smart, they were just using Google Maps, is they would put Pokemon in private property. You know, they would put it in like the middle of a maximum security prison, you know? <laughs> and there'd be like a rare Pokemon, and people would be like, well, I want to catch the Pokemon. Got to catch them all. <laughs> and they would trespass. And so it would say, no trespassing, right? Please do not trespass in your pursuit of Pokemon. Our technology is really not that smart. It's just putting Pokemon somewhere on the map, right? Trespassing is going where it's not good for you to go, right? Where it's not wise for you to go. Where you're going uh, beyond the boundaries of what is safe for you, what is good for you, Right? Um, and so this idea of sin as a trespass, does that make sense? That's more in line with sin as harmatia, as missing the mark, like in uh, archery, right? And so we are dead when we do that. That's kind of the main point about sin. It's not so much that God is going to come and punish you. It's that you are already punished if you're living a life of sin. Because if God loves you, And if God has a good plan for you, then not living according to that plan is going to be less than ideal. Does that make sense? I think that we sort of um, misunderstand God and the idea of holiness and the idea of sin when we think of it just as doing bad stuff, that God is going to come and punish you. How dare you? How dare you go to Necto? Sorry, I just <laughs> just I think it's so ridiculous how we focus on those things, right? How dare you look at those things on your computer screen? And because of that, bad things are going to happen, right? It's more than that, brothers and sisters. It's saying you were dead because you walked off the path. Can you imagine that uh, Google Maps tells you on the road, hey, you want to stay on this road, right? And you're like, well, you can't tell me what to do, right? I'm a free person, right? I mean, I have freedom. I'm an American. I can go wherever I want. But it so happens that the road that they have you on is over a deep ravine. And if you were to actually get off the road, you would plunge to your death. Now, you might be like, I didn't mean to. Forgive me. I'm so sorry, Google Maps. Right? It's like, it doesn't matter. You stepped off the road, right? It's not because Google Maps was trying to punish you, right? They're not like, you did a bad thing to get off that road. It's that if you get off the road, you're going to fall into a ravine. So you should stay on the road. This is much the way sin works. When we are not living the life that God has for us, then it is a life that leads to a deadening of your spirit. And so we're going to keep on going with this and to understand what it is we're talking about. We're not just talking about uh, individual sins. We are talking about something much bigger. And it tells us that. So you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. What does that mean, the course of this world? It's telling you that everybody lives this way. Everyone. 
It's not so much a choice that you decide, hey, you know what, I'm going to do bad things, right? But sin is thought of in this sense as more status quo. It's just the way you live, right? And if you don't believe me, let's keep on going. It says, following the prince of the power of the air. That's really weird. What is the prince of the power of the air? That sounds like demonic, kind of, right? Prince of the power of the air. But there's one word that doesn't fit here. One word that makes no sense. Air. What are you talking about? Prince of the power of the air. This doesn't really make sense unless you understand kingdom language. Okay? And how people think about the world. So one of the things that I teach when I teach the kingdom of God is in Matthew, it doesn't say the kingdom of God. It says the kingdom of the heavens. Your Bible's always translated as heaven. I'm sorry, it's wrong. It's, it doesn't say the kingdom of heaven. This is what we think. We think he's talking about heaven after you die, right? The place with the clouds and the angels and the harps. That's not what it's saying. Heaven as a singular does mean the domain of God. But the word heaven... In Greek, it just means sky. It's the sky, right? And so in, uh, what, in the Gospels, when it says kingdom of the heavens, it's a plural. Skies. Wait, what? It's saying multiple heavens. Because you have to understand that in the biblical worldview, there was not just one heaven. You guys remember, there's a passage uh, in... I believe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul is talking about a man who was caught up into the third heaven. Do you guys remember this? Right? A man who was caught up into the third heaven. Okay? So if he says third heaven, that means there's at least three. Right? We think of heaven as just one place. It's that place up there, the cloud palace where God is, right? Where we're going to go after we die. But that's not the way that people understand it in the Bible. That there are many, many tiers of heaven. And it starts with, guess what? The air around you. This immediate place right here has air, right? Breathe that in. That's the air, right? That is a heaven. That is the first tier of heaven, right? And so when it says the kingdom of the air, what is he talking about? He's talking about right here all around you. Who owns that? Who's ruling that? It's not fully God. Right? This is why we pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Because we want God's rule to come here. Because we know the world is not as it should be. There is a different ruler. There is a different way of doing things. Right? Because if this world was the place where God wanted it to be, then the big picture, the big story would already be lived out. We would be one. We would be unified. We would be loving each other. We would be uh, uh, just together in harmony. But that definitely is not happening. We've never been more divided, it seems, in some sense. We are just individuals all over the place, living selfishly for ourselves. Do you think that is God's will? Is that God's will? And so I think we just sell short the story of God when we make it only about ourselves. Because that's not God's will. He doesn't just want to save you. I said this last week and I meant it. That I think for some of us, we think, as long as I'm saved and I'm going to heaven, the hell with the rest of you. Literally, the hell with the rest of you. 
can't be the plan of God. That can't be. If he loves you, he also loves you and you and you and you and you and you and you. It is a big story. It is a big love. But that's not what the ruler of the air wants. The ruler of the air wants us divided. The ruler of the air wants you to live selfishly, right? And so this is what we're talking about. When we talk about living in sin, we're not just talking about those bad things, those like little taboos, right? It's bigger than that. It's living a different kind of story, a story where you put yourself at the center, where it's just about you, right? And it says that that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is the one thing that we're told about this story, that we're told about the way the kingdom of the air, the the ruler of the air operates. It's about disobedience. What is disobedience? Disobedience is this idea. Hey, you know what? You can't tell me what to do, right? So much of the Bible, so much of God is about obedience, following the way of God. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he means it. But we're like, do I really have to love my neighbor? I don't feel like it. Hey, USA, USA, right? You can't tell me what to do. The sons and daughters of disobedience. I get to do whatever I want. And you can't put any restrictions on me. It's the kingdom of the power of the air, brothers and sisters. Right? Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh. If you look in the Greek, it does not say body. Man, we have gotten so twisted. If you look in your ESV, they even tell you. There's going to be a footnote that says that does not say body. It says Greek flesh. Why did they change it? I don't know. Maybe they just didn't want to repeat themselves. But in uh, uh, Paul's worldview, he talks about two kinds of realities that live within us. Living by the flesh, sarks, and living by the spirit, pneuma. Right? And these two things are opposed in Paul's worldview. He does not use the word for body. There's a perfectly good Greek word for that. It's soma. But he didn't use it. He used the word flesh. And what people uh, talk about, uh, sometimes it gets translated as sinful nature. There's this part of you that is trying to rebel, that is trying to rebel from what the Spirit is trying to lead you to do. It is that selfishness within you. It is that part of you that has decided, I want to be God. I want to decide my own fate. I want to decide what is good for me. Right? And so that is the word that he talks about here. He never uses the word body. But we as Christians, we get really focused on the body. Right? We shame the body. We're like, oh my gosh, don't do those things with your body. You know, and I'm not saying that all those things are good. I'm just saying that's not what this says, right? We we don't read this and think like, oh man, we should be so ashamed of what we're doing with our body. It's talking about a different kind of nature, right? A nature where you are the one fully in charge. You get to do what you want to do. And so we all once lived that way. So, brothers and sisters, it's no longer a morality game to say some of us are doing the right thing. Like we're obeying laws the right way, we're going to church, right? He's saying we all are living out this way that is not good. Living according to the passions of the desires of our fleshly selves, right? The the part of us that lives apart from God. The isolated self, the little self, the false self. That's what it means by the flesh, 
right? Carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, this is a, a, a part that we struggle with. We don't like that word wrath. The anger, the desire for God to destroy, to get vengeance. Well, brothers and sisters, I don't know. For me, when I read this passage, it immediately made me think of a passage in Genesis. You know, because maybe some of you are thinking like, hey, Steve, what's so bad about us just trying to chase our own pleasure? Of of us just trying to live for ourselves, right? Like trying to, you know, get a good job and trying to make money and trying to be safe and trying to provide for my family, right? That's the way of the prince of the air, Right? That's just the way of the world. Everybody's doing that. Everyone's living for themselves. What's so bad about that? Why would God want to come and get vengeance on us for that? Punish us. Wrath. That's another word that you should try yelling out in the dyad or in your class. Wrath. It's another pretty charged word, right? The wrath of God. Right? We don't like that word. But it made me think about uh, this passage in Genesis. You guys remember this? God had created the heavens and the earth and created human beings. But human beings were going around and they were just living mad selfishly. And so this is what it says. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. I just put up a picture of a smokestack there. You know, what we find is that In our pursuit of this individual story, saying, you know what? My story is the only one that matters. As long as I get mine. I get my money. I get my success. I get my house. I get my car. Right? I provide for my family. Then it doesn't matter about anyone else's story. And that story is poisoning the earth. We're literally killing the planet because of that story. There are people who decide, you know what? I'm just going to live for me and the people who look like me. I'm just going to protect my own. And some of the most hateful stuff is coming out of that. I just imagine that God looks at that stuff, the way we are living in this world so selfishly for ourselves and justifying it and looking at it and grieving. How could that not grieve the heart of God? I think that when it talks about we should be We are, by nature, children of wrath. It's saying that the way that we live selfishly, I mean, it's unjust. It's not the way it should be. We should be punished for that. Right? But this is the good news. We are not. We are not. We should be punished. I mean, God would be perfectly within His rights to just say, man, these human beings are so selfish. Let's start over. Let's make oink bonks. I just made something up, right? Let's make a new race. Let's make a new kind of creature, not human beings, right? I don't know where that came from. Oink box. I, I, yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't do that. We're told that, um, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now we get another loaded Christian word, saved. 
It's a word that we use and it usually means only one thing for us. It means going to heaven after you die. But I got to tell you, in the Bible, it almost never meant that. I'm just being honest. Does it mean going to heaven after you die? Yeah, probably, but not just that. So this is the example I give. When you see people crying out to save, it's actually the word Hosanna, right? Uh, So that's one of the, the, the Hebrew words for save. Save us, save us. Hosanna, right? When Jesus was going into the city of Jerusalem and they're crying out Hosanna, do you think those people were saying, Jesus, it doesn't matter what happens for the rest of our lives, just make sure we go to heaven after we die. That's not what they were saying. They were saying, Jesus, we want you to overthrow the people who are ruling over us. The Roman government, they're ruling over us. Israel has been kept down. Can you save us from their oppression? Right? It's like, you know, someone who's enslaved and they say, save me, save me. And you're like, Jesus died for your sins. I hope you go to heaven after you die. Is that what they mean? Are they saying, get me out of these chains? Right? When somebody has a drug addiction, somebody is, is just, they're drowning in depression, and they say, can somebody save me? Do they mean, hey, tell me about how I can go to heaven after I die? No. But what we have done is we have taken that beautiful word, salvation, which is about life, and we have made it about Actually, not life. Afterlife. (laughs) It has nothing to do with this life anymore. It only has to do with your afterlife. But here we see it saying, uh, even while we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You know what the hyphen is? That's an equivalent. By grace you have been saved. You have been made alive in Christ. The problem of sin is not so much about punishment. The problem of sin is about deadness. And so by living these very selfish lives that we are leading, that are only about us, you get so many people now who are asking the question, What is the meaning of life? Because it doesn't seem like it's this. This seems really empty. At the end of the day, I'm alone. At the end of the day, we're killing each other. We only care about each other. We're so isolated from each other. This cannot be it. And we feel deadened inside. And so for many of us, when we're asking that question, is this it? Is this all there is? It is a question of deadness versus aliveness. Now what about this? This is what we've been trying to sell you on. Remember last week we were talking about that big story. If you actually were able to love each other as God loves you. And it's just our world was about love. It was about unity. We are together. You didn't feel alone. Yeah, you're not just living for yourself, but you're living for other people. Yeah, you have to sacrifice sometimes for that. But you're like, man, someone else is benefiting because of what I did. And you know what? I benefit from other people, and you definitely don't feel alone. I think when people live that way... I mean, have you ever seen somebody who's living for other people? Have you seen somebody who has a cause that they're living for? You know, They're fighting human trafficking or some kind of evil of this world. And it's so hard, and it's so heartbreaking, and there's so many things where you're like, oh man, that person's a really good person. And we look at them, and we're like, good for you. But you have to ask the question, are they alive? Do they have joy? 
This is a question I ask often. Do you think Jesus was joyful when he gave his life for humanity? Maybe not right at that moment. It probably hurt a lot, right? But do you think Jesus, his whole life, his 33 years was like, man, these stupid people. Why do I have to live for them? Why do I have to die for them? Come on, God, get someone else. You know, sometimes we think that. I think Jesus had ultimate peace and ultimate joy and ultimate purpose. I think Jesus, he was fully alive. He was fully alive. When you live for other people, you're fully alive. Right? When you're helping someone else, and when your heart is breaking for someone else, when you're not just thinking about yourself, you are alive. But when you are living only for yourself, there's something in your soul that shrinks. And this is the problem, right? And so, by grace, you have been saved and raised us up. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of the grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? We are raised to the the level of Jesus Christ right now. You are given the same status as Christ. But if you read that in the traditional sense, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, we read that as go to heaven after you die, right? Then it doesn't make sense what he says. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That doesn't make sense if he were already in heaven, right? But he's saying that's what you get now. You get raised to the level of Jesus. The life that Jesus has, you get that life. You get his status. You get his joy. You get his fullness. You get his aliveness. You've been raised to that. And in the coming ages, in the years to come, he's going to continue to shower the riches of his grace and his kindness to you in Christ Jesus. You get all of that. That's what we are designed for, right? And so, then we get the famous passage, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, why are we living the lives that we are living? For many of us, we are trying to prove something. We are trying to save ourselves. We are trying to prove that we are worthwhile by our effort. We live in this system This world that says, hey, you know what? You go find your own thing, right? You go chase your own meaning. You go live your life for yourself, for your own enjoyment, your own pleasure, right? But in this, brothers and sisters, is a very deep oppression. And the oppression is, you got to keep moving. You're not a human being. You're a human doing. you got to do something. You ever feel that? Do you ever feel that? I, I tell the story about my dad, who um, uh, he grew up during the Korean War. Uh, he worked really hard to uh, provide for my family, to get us to the United States. And I learned my values from my dad, right? I mean, I internalized that. And so my dad, I tell the story a couple years ago, uh, he, he was uh, retirement age. He was like, I think, a, a couple years past retirement age. He had put it off. But finally, he's like, okay, you know, I'm starting to get tired. You know, my body isn't what it used to be. So maybe I should retire. And so he uh, submitted his retirement papers, but it happened to be spring break. So he's not retired yet. 
But spring break gives you a little taste of what retirement's going to be like. So he had nothing to do. He's like, well, you know, I'm not going to put out more research proposals, right? I'm going to retire this year. So he went to the mall with my mom. They walked around. Then he came home and immediately sent out an email rescinding his retirement. <laughs> He's like, I can't do this, man. I can't do this for the rest of my life. I can't do nothing. I got to do something. My dad actually finally retired last year. And uh, he, I guess, talked to the president of the school and they gave us some special projects. So he's still going to school and he's working in his retirement. That's my dad. And I learned that from my dad. I always learned you have to be doing something. I feel that in my being, it's a part of the course of this world, and we follow it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, so for me, just to give you an uh, example of this, uh, there'll be times like a Saturday afternoon, there's like nothing to do. I don't have any homework, right? I, 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 like nothing is due. And my dad, he's out like in the yard, like working really hard. He's mowing the lawn, he's doing all this stuff, right? He gets home after mowing the lawn, and then he's on his computer, and he's working, and he's doing all this stuff. Meanwhile, I'm watching TV, trying to have a good time, but I can't. Because there's something within me that's like, oh, it's not right. I should be doing something, right? I talked to some people at U of M. After the school year is done, like the, the next week, I'm like, hey, man, how are you enjoying your break? They're like, oh, Pastor Steve, I'm so anxious. Like, why are you anxious? Not in school, man. It's like, I don't know, but I feel like I need to be doing something. Right? Brothers and sisters, I got to tell you that the contemplative prayer has been the most important spiritual practice in my life because it has taught me one thing, the most important thing. I am a human being, not a human doing. And it has learned, it has, it, it, I have learned through it how to do nothing, how to sit still and do nothing. That's not the way this world works. This world's like, come on, you got to prove yourself. Come on, you got to do something. Get an A. Get an internship. Right? Make lots of money. You know, go buy stuff. Go produce. Go, go, go. Do, do, do. And we all feel, we're like, yes, yes, yes. And it's tiring. And it's exhausting. And meanwhile, we're all anxious. We're all depressed because we feel like we're not measuring up. Or we're anxious because we're wondering about all the stuff that we still have to do. Right? That is not the world that God wants to give us. That is not the kingdom of God. God wants to save you from that. And so that is why you are saved by grace. Because you know what grace is? Grace is a gift. Have you ever tried to earn a gift? It doesn't work. You can't earn a gift, otherwise it's not a gift. Has anyone tried to give you something? They're like, hey, you know what, brother? I just want to give this to you. And you're like, hey, let me give you 10 bucks for this. Like, no, it's a gift. Like, okay, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll help you with your homework later today. Thank you so much. And you're like, no, man, what are you trying to do? It's a gift. You know how you receive a gift? Like this. You do nothing. All you have is open hands. That's how you receive a gift. Right? If this world, if what I'm saying is true, that the way of this world is so much a part of everything you're doing, I mean, it's just the way everyone lives, then brothers and sisters, I think, if you want to live a different way, you need to stop. You need to interrupt the life that we are normally living. 
Brothers and sisters, um, sometimes the most amazing things that happen in this world happen by doing nothing. I heard this story this past week, and maybe you guys have uh, as well. Have you heard of uh, Greta Thunberg? Greta Thunberg is a Swedish high school student. And she is 16 years old. But a year ago, this is Greta Thunberg in 2018, she decided that she was going to skip school on Fridays, not go to school, right? And she was going to strike from school. You're like, what? (laughs) Who cares if if a 15-year-old doesn't go to school? But she was going to strike because she was so alarmed about climate change and about how nobody's doing anything about it. And so she decided, uh, so, so that in, in Danish says, uh, school strike for climate. And she just had the sign and she just sat in front of the, the city hall building, right? And so she would do that every Friday. And most of the time, a year ago, no one else was there. So this picture was taken last Friday. And last Friday, there were coordinated strikes throughout the world. And there were millions of people involved in striking for climate change. This little girl, 15 years old, did this by doing nothing. She didn't go to school. She didn't study harder. She did nothing. (laughs) Why? Why is that so striking to us? I mean, even the word strike, it sounds like an active thing. Strike, strike, strike. It sounds like hitting, right? But a strike is doing nothing. That's what it is. You interrupt the normal life. I'm not going to play that game. I'm going to step outside of my normal way of doing things in order to just break it up, right? And so, brothers and sisters, what would it look like for you to experience grace? Grace is something that is caught, not bought. You could also say it's received, not earned, but that doesn't rhyme. Caught, not bought, that rhymes. It just sounds better. It's something that is caught, not bought. You can't earn it. You can't hustle for it. So if you're like, Pastor Steve, what do I got to do? What do I got to do to get the kingdom of God? What do I got to do? I'm going to tell you, you got to receive it. Your desire to do something to earn it is the problem. The idea that I can only be something, I can only have meaning in my life, I can only be somebody if I earn it, if I do something, if I uh, work really hard, that is the opposite of grace. And so, in this world, brothers and sisters, because it is so antithetical to the way we are living, when you are accustomed to exerting all your mental, emotional, and physical muscles, earning everything that makes you feel important, worthy, and special in this world, then just someone telling you about grace is probably not going to be enough to transform you. This truth must be ingested, experienced, and allowed to disrupt the patterns of your life that have developed in direct opposition to it. In other words, you have to die to live. You have to drown in grace. And when you die to the ways of this world, you realize you are now a fish breathing waters of grace, not the heir of the prince of this world. Brothers and sisters, many ways, many times we get that through prayer. So for me, um, when I started learning contemplative prayer, I, I got to the place where I was like, is this it? Is this all there is to life? I wanted to be a successful pastor. I wanted to be good at this. And I got to a place where I was just really worn and tired out. 
And, and I was, I, I felt like I was working really hard. At the time, I was doing two churches, but man, I was just beaten up by life. And one of the things I realized is that I didn't really understand spiritual disciplines. I really didn't understand how to pray. And so I decided to start praying this uh, contemplative prayer, which is more about just being silent before God, to do this 30 minutes every day. And so I tried it. And I got to tell you, <laughs> the most uh, difficult thing about it was sitting there and being like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing anything. This is a big waste of my time. And that's kind of what it is. We have to interrupt what you think your life is about in order for God to give you something different. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up here. And I just want to ask you, brothers and sisters, what is it that we really want in life? And I want to tell you that grace, it's not just something. It's not just about doing nothing for the sake of doing nothing. I know sometimes we run into that. We're like, Pastor Steve, if we just get, you know, these things from God, if we just get our identity from God, then we're not going to be motivated to do anything. You know, and so sometimes I tell people, I think the most important thing you can do in life is pray. And most of us, because we've been living in this world, we're like, yeah, Pastor Steve, you have to say that because you're a pastor. <laughs> but come on, I got to study. I got to work. I got to go, 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 go. I got to get that bread. I got to get this done. You can't just sit around and pray. So uh, Martin Luther, he had this thing that he said. He said, you know, I have so many things to do today. So many things. Man, I'm so busy that I need to spend at least three hours in prayer today. So a lot of people, they developed out of that quote, this idea, I'm too busy not to pray. I think for many of us, we rush around and we feel this beat of this world, the kingdom of air. It's just all around you. Go, 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 do, do, do. You're not enough. You're not enough. You're not enough. What if, what if you could receive that grace knowing you are a child of God? You don't need to play that game to prove who you are. You are loved by God. You are God's masterpiece. That's what it means by workmanship. It's a Greek word that we get the word poem, poema. And it's a word that probably is best translated as masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. You've already been made. He's given you everything. And in fact, he sent his son to die for you. That you can be fully accepted into his family. You don't need to prove anything anymore. But brothers and sisters, so many of us, we live in a world where we forget that because we are just marching to the rhythm of this world. You got to do, you got to perform, you got to prove. What would it mean to begin your day every day to soak in that grace and say, I know who I am. I don't need to do anything. And you actually believe that in your heart, in your nervous system. I, I say that um, I didn't realize this until I really started to learn how to pray. How much I walked around the world just being so anxious. I, I just had this kind of low-level anxiety all the time. I just felt like I wasn't measuring up. Do you ever feel that? I, I describe it as this kind of tremor that you feel in your heart. It's like It feels like this. You can't quite get a good breath. 
just almost feel like you got to do something. Is there something I'm not thinking about? Is, is there something in my life that I'm not juggling? I got to tell you, when I learn how to pray, when I learn to receive grace, when I pray, oftentimes I'll put my hands out like this. Not because I'm super spiritual, but almost just to signify there is grace all around me and I want to catch it. I want to receive it. I need that. I need that identity. I am not a human doing. I am a child of God. I don't need to prove anything anymore. What if you were able to know that and get rid of that tremor, that that anxiety that you feel? Don't you think that you would be free to do your work better? I think that's what it means. For we are His masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace is not an excuse to no longer act. Grace is the freedom to act now in love, to act in the freedom of Christ, in the freedom of being a child of God with nothing to prove, living for something so much greater than yourself. That is the story of grace. So friends, can you just pray with me? Friends, I, I, I don't know if you feel like you have something to prove. But maybe just in faith, you could just put your hands out to just receive grace. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray over my brothers and sisters here who, like me, have been born into this world where we feel like we have to perform, we have to achieve, we have to do, we have to go, and we have been oppressed by that. We feel it in our hearts, in our minds. We are so harried and worried and hurried. God, we want to receive your grace. You sent your son, Jesus, to die for us, to show us who we really are, to give us actual life, to give us breath and freedom from the tyranny of feeling like we always need to prove something. Thank you, God, for your grace that saves us from this kind of life, that now we can live our lives for a different story. We can live for others. We can live for love. We can live for the purposes, God, that you want to give us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.